James's point here is not that works save us. No, faith saves us. But for faith to save, it's got to be the real deal. It has to be faith that issues forth in works, faith that is joined by works, faith that produces action. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, and we're continuing a message that we began last time. It's called Faith That Works. And Jonathan, I hear you saying that if we want to know if we have genuine saving faith, there needs to be some sort of fruit, some sort of evidence in our lives that our faith is is genuine. Yeah, I think James is really concerned here to root out empty professions of faith, professions of faith that make absolutely no difference to the way in which a person lives or, or behaves toward others. And, and he draws out an example here, which we'll chat about in the message. But, you know, someone comes along in physical need and a person who professes faith does absolutely nothing for them just says, oh, you know, go and have a blessed day, and and then ignores their need. And he says, well, where is the evidence of faith within that? Is that what real faith looks like? And he, he says, no, it's that's not, that doesn't look like the real deal. And and it's challenging because we 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 kind of want to be left alone with our profession. And you know, I I'm I'm a I'm a Christian and that's it. Don't ask anything of me. But but James says, no, if you're if if you follow Jesus, then you'll you'll give evidence of that in the way you treat others, in the way you behave. And we, we don't want to be challenged in that way. None of us wants to be challenged, but actually we need to hear that challenge. Well, we're going to be challenged together as we open God's Word to the book of James. We are in chapter 2, looking at verses 14 to 26 today, and continuing a message called Faith That Works. Here is Jonathan. Faith without works is dead, James insists. It does no good. It is not authentic. And next and finally, we'll spend a bit of time on this one. It does not justify. It will not justify. James asks us if we would like an illustration of the truth that he is teaching us. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It's an invitation. I mean, how could we refuse he actually has two illustrations for us from the lives of two heroes of faith from the Old Testament. First up is Abraham, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Now we need to just take a moment here and recall the outline of the great story of Abraham and his wonderful journey of faith. It's a remarkable story. And Abraham, despite all his flaws and failings, his ups and his downs, he is a model to us, isn't he, of authentic faith. The story begins in Genesis 12. God comes to Abram, as he's known then. His name is changed later. He comes to him, sort of taps him on the shoulder, as it were, and calls him to leave his homeland and his kin and go to a land that the Lord would show him in due course. God promised to make of him a great nation, to bless him and to make him a blessing to the world. Abram, for his part, he takes God at his word. He packs up his things and goes. Now, as he begins this great journey of faith along with his wife, Sarai, one key problem becomes very apparent. He and his wife, Sarai, were childless. 
And that's a problem because the fulfillment of the great promise of God rested on their having a family. They're going to be a nation, but to do that, they need children. In Genesis 15, God comes again to Abram, reaffirms his promise, and now adds to it. He takes him outside one evening, Genesis 15 and verse 5, and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's the declaration of God. And here's what we read about Abram, Genesis 15 and verse 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, it is at this point, at this key moment, that Abram is made right with God. This is the classic, if you like, gospel moment in the life of Abram, the moment to which the apostle Paul points in his foundational teaching on the doctrine of justification by faith. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. He believes the word of God, the promise of God, and God in his grace makes him right with him, declares him right with him, justifies him. He is now innocent in the courtroom of God as of that moment. And from this point onward in the story of Abram, we might ask the question quite legitimately, what does the saved life, the justified life, the life made righteous, the life of faith, what does that life look like? As we read the story, we become pretty clear on the fact that it doesn't look like sinless perfection. Abraham, he makes plenty of mistakes, is shown to be far from flawless. There are moments in the story when we might legitimately wonder if Abram has true faith at all. But profound evidence of his faith, unquestionable proof, comes in the dramatic incident with Isaac on the mountain. Genesis 22 opens up with these remarkable, quite shocking words. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Against all the odds, against the realities of biology, God had given to Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age, a son through whom the great covenant promises of God would come to fruition and through whom blessing would come to the world, salvation blessing. And now God says to Abraham to go and sacrifice this precious boy on the mountain. This is a great test of faith. It would be impossible to imagine, I think, a greater test of faith than this one. Abraham has believed God's word. He has been declared righteous by God. But now comes the test. Is this faith of heart a genuine faith? Is it a faith that is willing to submit, willing to trust and obey? Is this a faith that results in real life works? The test comes. And here is the next thing we read in Genesis 22. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, as we know the story, we know that God mercifully provided a substitute. Isaac didn't perish. 
But Abraham was ready to trust God and to obey God to the very nth degree. He was willing to follow. His faith, it issued forth in works, in action, in obedience. And so we ask the question, was Abraham saved because he did this? Was he made righteous because he was willing to sacrifice his son? No, no, no. He was made righteous through faith seven chapters earlier. What was then the significance of the test? It was the outworking. It was the demonstration. It was the profound evidence and vindication of his faith. Now back to James chapter 2. What is it that James is teaching us here from the Abraham story? How is he handling it? Verse 21 again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What does that, what does that mean? Does James mean that Abraham was made righteous, saved from his sins when he did that? Does James not know that in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, long before the Isaac incident, we are told the gospel truth that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness? Maybe he hadn't read the narrative carefully. Well, actually, James does know that. He actually quotes from those very words in verse 23. He knows it full well. But here is the key to the puzzle. And I think this is an important learning moment for us as students of the Bible. The key to the puzzle is this. James is using this word justify with a different nuance of meaning than say the Apostle Paul uses it. In Paul's writings quite consistently to be justified is to be made righteous, to be declared righteous in the courtroom of God. But here in James, the word is clearly being used in a rather different way, closely related but distinct. To be justified here means to be shown to be righteous. And actually that makes a fair bit of sense. You and I, we can use the English word justify in just that way ourselves. Think about it. You send your child out to school saying, you know, I think it's going to rain today. That's what the forecast says. You're going to need a raincoat. No, mom, it's going to be fine. I'm going to look so silly wearing that thing. It's, it's sunny out. Uh, I'll be fine. Don't worry about me. And, and, and mom says, okay, sweetheart. And, and, and what happens, of course, four o'clock, they come in the door sopping wet and shivering. And what do we say? We say mom was justified in her warning. She was vindicated. She was proof, right? You're on your way to a meeting and your colleague says, look, traffic, it, it looks okay here. Traffic is terrible downtown. You're going to need an extra 15 minutes if you're going to get to that meeting on time. So you take their advice. You leave 15 minutes early and you only just make it to the important meeting on time. And you say, my colleague was justified in their caution, in their advice. To be justified can mean to be made right, to be put into right standing. That's one way legitimately to use it. But it can also mean to be shown to be, to be demonstrated to be in the right. And that's the second sense I think that James has in mind here. Like the mother with the raincoat or the colleague with the traffic advice. The sense here is of a proof or a vindication or a demonstration of being in the right. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works, shown to be righteous by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, 
Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So interesting what James says there in verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled that says, we might think that scripture talking about Abraham's gift of righteousness, we might, we might tend to think, well, that was fulfilled, if you like, when Abraham arrived safely in heaven. That was the proof that he was saved. That was the outworking of God's salvation in his life. But no, James places the fulfillment, that's the word he uses, the outworking of his faith in a somewhat more tangible, more immediate, more visible place. He places it in the moment when Abraham is tested and he lives out that faith under intense pressure. That's that's the moment when we see and we are shown beyond doubt that he is indeed a real believer. That's when we see and know for certain that he has faith, saving faith. And actually, that's exactly the message we hear from heaven at the moment of testing on the mountaintop. When Abraham is on the mountain, when the knife is raised in his hand over his son who is laid on the altar of sacrifice, this is the message that comes from heaven above, Genesis 22 and verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me that's interesting isn't it see God knew that Abraham had saving faith seven chapters earlier when he declared him righteous on the basis of faith. But God deemed it right to test that faith, to allow it to be vindicated under trial and to be shown to be true. And in that moment, in the kiln of testing, heaven declared Abraham's faith to be a living faith, an authentic faith, a true and living faith. It wasn't the moment of Abraham's salvation. But it was a moment of vindication. And in that sense, his claim to fear God was justified in that very moment. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Faith That Works from James chapter 2. And we're going to pause right here, but we'll get back to this message in just a moment. We're able to bring you Jonathan's teaching each day because of your generosity. Thank you to those who are giving and supporting Encounter the Truth. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Know Your Enemy. It's written by Graham Bynum, and it's a book about fighting sin. Because that's what we do in the Christian life. We fight sin, and it's hard to fight that sin when you can't see what's happening. It's hard to beat Satan when he's blindfolded you. And as a follower of Jesus, we're constantly engaging in that battle against sin. So knowing your enemy is an important part of that battle. We'd love to send you a copy of this book by Graham Bynum for your gift of any amount this month. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-99-TRUTH. Back to the message. Here is Jonathan. 
James now turns to illustrate the same principle from the life of Rahab, the prostitute. But in so doing, he moves right across the spectrum in every way you can possibly imagine. As one commentator notes, he moves from considering a man to considering a woman, a respected pillar of the community to a person of ill repute, from an Israelite, indeed the father of the nation, to a foreigner, a Gentile. And in making this very grand leap, James is showing us that the principles here of the passage apply to any person and to all people who would claim to have saving faith. That's important because James's imaginary conversation partner in verse 18, you'll remember, is saying, it's fine and okay for me to have faith and for you to have works. Some have one, others have another. And James is saying, no, uh-uh. Whoever you are, whatever your situation, you must have a faith that works. That's the only authentic kind. The principle, it applies to everyone. Verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The story of Rahab is, of course, a story of high drama. The Israelites are on the brink of entering Canaan, the promised land. Joshua, their leader, sends in two spies to scope out the land in the great city of Jericho. They enter the city and seeking somewhere to kind of lie low and to hide, they go to the home of a prostitute named Rahab. She takes them in. She hides them from the king's officials who are on the hunt for these reported enemy spies who are in their midst. And while the men are hiding in her home, Rahab makes a grand declaration of faith in their God, the God of Israel. This is Joshua chapter 2 and verse 9. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Here's a Gentile woman, foreigner, a prostitute, declaring that the God of Israel is the true and living God, the all-powerful sovereign of heaven and of earth. That's her declaration of faith. It's a wonderful declaration, but here's the question. Is it real? Is it authentic? Is she merely telling her foreign guests what they want to hear? In a sense, her actions now will speak for themselves. Will she help these hunted men or will she send them out into the street to face a certain death or even worse, will she send a quiet message to the authorities to reveal their whereabouts? Well, this is how the narrative proceeds. Let me read straight from Joshua chapter two and verse 18. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall and she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. Story, it's fit for Hollywood, isn't it? It's ready for the big screen. But what Rahab does there, it vindicates her profession of faith. That's what happens. It demonstrates that her faith is genuine and substantial and real. If you like, her actions justify her claim to be a believer in the God of Israel. And so James concludes, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. A 
profession of faith is a dead profession if it does not prove itself by action. If Rahab claimed to have faith in God and then had given the spies up, we would have known her as nothing more, wouldn't we, as a two-faced prostitute rather than as a hero of the faith. Her actions proved that her faith was authentic. I take it that James is only kind of hammering his point home because he knew that these early Christians actually needed to hear it, needed to learn it, needed to receive it. I take it that James saw within this early church the danger of empty professions of faith that might have given comfort to the person who made them but were not accompanied by life change and would not lead to salvation. And he wanted the believers to know that such a profession of faith does not save because ultimately such a faith is not true faith. James's point here is not that works save us. No, not at all. Faith saves us. He knows that and I trust that we know that. But for faith to save, it's got to be the real deal. It has to be faith that issues forth in works, faith that is joined by works, faith that produces action over time. And so, friends, this leads us to the obvious and the necessary and perhaps the uncomfortable challenge as we finish our time. And the challenge is simply this. Does my life give evidence of true faith residing within my heart? Is my faith leading to action, to works, to discernible fruit? Can I point to action in my life, to concrete transformation that justifies my claim, that vindicates my claim to believe? And friend, can you do the same thing today? That's the question of the passage. That's the simple and the direct challenge that James issues for us. You see, it's just, it's too easy it's too easy to imagine that just because you call yourself a Christian, because you actually believe that God is real, because you made some profession of faith way back when, that all is now well with you and the Lord. But if your profession of faith hasn't changed your life, if it hasn't led to fruit, if it hasn't led to works, as James calls them, if there isn't that fruit of faith in your life, then James would call you to ask, he would require you to ask of yourself, is your faith real? Is it authentic faith? And if the answer is no, as it may be, or if the answer is I'm not quite sure, as it could be, then the only remedy is this. It is to cry out to the Lord and ask him to give you the kind of faith that can change you. The faith that starts at the foot of the cross with a brokenness over sin and a wonder that Jesus shed his blood for you and for me. A faith that turns to him as Savior and Lord. The faith that by the power of the Spirit leads to works. The faith that ultimately can save. And if you call out to him for that, he is only too ready to answer. And if you call out to him for the gift of faith, friends, he is only too ready to save. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, wrapping up our message, Faith That Works, part of a larger series from the book of James called Doers of the Word. And if you ever miss a broadcast, come and listen online at EncounterTheTruth.org. 
Well, Encounter the Truth is able to stay on this station and online because of your generosity. It is your giving that makes it all possible. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Know Your Enemy. And Jonathan, I think often we may recognize the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. But being a spiritual battle, sometimes it can be a struggle to know how to fight. And I think that's what this book addresses, isn't it? Well, that's exactly right. The aim of this book is to help us to have an understanding of the nature of the battle and the nature of our enemy so that we can fight the battle effectively in the Lord's strength. This isn't something I think that we give a lot of thought to, perhaps, uh, naturally. Maybe we don't hear a whole lot of teaching on this, but it's such an important topic because the Bible's so clear that there is an enemy of the Lord's who is an enemy of his people. And if we belong to the Lord Jesus, in a sense, we've got a target on our back. Mercifully and wonderfully, the Lord Jesus is more powerful than the enemy who seeks to undermine his work. But we need to have an understanding of what's going on so that we can flee to Christ, so that we can find help from his word and the strength of his spirit, that we might uh, resist the devil and then find that he will flee from us, which is the promise of, of God's word for us. But I think this book will be a tremendous help and a tremendous encouragement within that fight. Well, we want to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thanks for your support this month. You can give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. Again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org, and our phone number is 833-998-7884. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.